Our Old Testament reading is from Exodus chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. And we are continuing our reading through the book of Exodus, continuing to read about the various plagues, and we are finally to the last of the plagues, uh, the one that is the worst of all, the one where finally the people will be uh, free to go. However, there's still more to the story first. And before we read, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made. And God, we do thank you for your word which you have given to us. God, there are so many words and so many voices uh, leading us in so many different directions. God, I pray that you would uh, tune our hearts to sing your grace. You would tune our ears to hear the voice of our true shepherd. God, that we would... Uh, that we would follow you all the days of our life. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Exodus chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. Says, now the Lord had said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. And when he does, he will drive you out completely. Tell the people that men and women alike are to ask their neighbors for articles of silver and gold. The Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people, and Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. So Moses said, This is what the Lord says. About midnight I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die, from the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the female slave who is at her handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt. Worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me and saying, Go, you and all the people who follow you. After that, I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. The Lord had said to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you so that my wonders may be multiplied in Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let the Israelites go out of his country. Turning then to Mark chapter 14, verses 12 through 16, our gospel reading, as Jesus has um, Come to <clears throat> Holy Week. He's come to uh, the time of celebrating the Passover and just before he goes to the cross. Mark 14, verses 12 through 16. It says, On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples went or asked him, Where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, The teacher asks, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. 
So they prepared the Passover. And we will, oh, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We will continue reading in both Exodus and Mark and see how these stories uh, overlay on each other in the weeks to come. But we're also looking at how they overlay on the uh, story that we get in the book of Revelation, the vision, in fact, that we get in the book of Revelation. And uh, we're looking this week at chapter 14, verses 1 through 13. And it's uh, kind of important that we know what happened before this. Uh, This is coming right on the heels. Chapter 14 comes right on the heels of chapter 13, um, not just numerically, but in, in the order of the vision. So what's happened in uh, chapter 13, we've seen this, uh, this dragon and then this beast and this other beast, one coming out of the sea, one coming out of the land, and, um, <clears throat> and then this number of 666, and we're like, this marks on the heads, and we're like, and hands, and what's going on with all this kind of stuff? And we kind of have to have a handle, at least somewhat, on all of that kind of stuff, or what happens in chapter 14 doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, so that said, we're going to go ahead and read chapter 14 and then I'll go back and explain all all the rest. Here we go. In chapter 14, it goes like this. Then I looked and there before me was the lamb standing on Mount Zion and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven, like the roar of rushing waters and like the loud, like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they remained virgins. They follow the lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among mankind and offered as first fruits to God and the lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. A second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives its mark on their forehead or on their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast and its image or for anyone who receives the mark of its name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the people of God who keep his commands and remain faithful to Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. All right, there we go. As I say, may not make a whole lot of sense if we don't have at least somewhat of a handle on what happens in chapter 13. And so what we had looked at previously with chapter 13 is uh, with this dragon and this uh, in chapter 12 and the beast in 13. Uh, <clears throat> we have this dragon 
that is identified with Satan and these beasts, one that comes out of the um, out of the sea, this chaotic sea monster, uh, and this beast that comes up out of the sea is this composite beast of all these beasts that we see in the vision of Daniel chapter 7 representing these various kingdoms of the earth. And so we see this chaotic beast that is representative of the empires of man. And as it comes up, then we see this other beast that comes out of the earth, and it is trying to get everyone in the world to bow down and worship the other beast. And so it is this um, sort of priesthood, but like a false priesthood, this false prophet pointing people to this empire, this empire of man, the state itself, trying to get everybody to bow down and worship the state, to give their lives, their full allegiance, uh, to fear nothing more than the power of the state and to hope and trust in nothing more than the power of the state. Who is like the state after all? And so this is the blasphemy of the false prophet. Um, and then we're told that you know, we've got to figure this out, that there's a, uh, a wisdom that is called for here. And it's something that can be calculated, this number of the beast, for it's the number of a man or the number of mankind, and the number is 666. And we talked about that a couple weeks ago, how this is um, doing a couple things here. But basically it's the number of, of humanity. That when you uh, try to figure out, well, who is this? You spend all this time trying to calculate what this uh, number might represent. And it's like, well, it's, it's a whole system built on the ways of mankind instead of the ways of God. That's what it is. And so it, does it spell out Nero Caesar? Yes, it does. <laughs> is that one of the people is definitely talking about? Yeah, I think so. Uh, I think there's a good case that can be made for that. But not just Nero Caesar, but Caesar and all those like him. And it's uh, the kind of thing where if you're trying to do all these calculations, you end up in weird places. But it's wisdom is what's called for. Wisdom where we can calculate, where we can see it uh, pretty clearly in the same way that you know how to tell the difference between the Garden of Eden and the Tower of Babel, right? The Garden of Eden, we have this high place that's created by God for people to dwell with him. Rivers flowing from it and... Uh, things as they are supposed to be, people in right relationship with God and with each other. You move a few more chapters down through Genesis, and you end up in uh, chapter 11, where you have the Tower of Babel. And this tower is the accomplishments of man. It's people coming together and saying, hey, we can do this without God. We can create a high place for ourselves. We can make a name for ourselves. We don't need God. We can do this on our own. And what you see is a high place that is constructed by man, which has um, people not in a right relationship with God, and by the end of the story, not even in a right relationship with each other. And if you know how to tell the difference between those two, the Garden of Eden and the Tower of Babel, we ought to be able to tell the difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world. We ought to. The problem is the kingdoms of this world are so uh, slippery and seductive and have a lot of cultural pull about them. And we saw that with the 
uh, the dragon and the first beast and the second beast, that they are, it's a parody of the Trinity itself, a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so we see that, you know, this one beast, it kind of looks like a lamb, but it's not. And just as Jesus said, false prophets would show up and they'd be like, like wolves in sheep's clothing. And so they kind of look like, maybe from a distance, hey, that might actually be a sheep. That might actually be someone who is following the shepherd until you get a little closer look and you go, wait a second, wait a second. They're devouring the sheep. They're out for themselves. They're not listening to the voice of the shepherd at all. So we ought to be able to tell the difference even if um, there is um, some falseness going on that might um, uh, seeks to deceive is what it does. And so then we get into chapter 14, and this is where it's so beautiful, because at the end of chapter 13, you have this, what looks like this very powerful dragon, this very powerful beast, this very powerful other beast. All the world seems to be going after, and it seems to be conquering all the people of God. And we go, well, I guess that means we lose? And you turn to chapter 14, and it's, <laughs> No. Chapter 13 is very much like looking at the cross of, with Jesus on the cross on Friday. Chapter 14 is very much like looking at the uh, empty tomb on Sunday. And so what looked like it was defeat of Jesus by the powers of the world on Friday, on Sunday, you see it in a whole different light. On Sunday, you look back at the cross and you go, wait a second. That wasn't his defeat. That was his victory. Evil was defeated at the cross, not Jesus. And so when you turn to chapter 14, that's what's happening here, is you're seeing the same world events, but now shown from the perspective of this heavenly vision that shows that in Jesus Christ, even what looked like defeat is actually victory. And so this is where you have, uh, this is then I looked and there before me was the lamb, not the fake lamb. Not a wolf in sheep's clothing, but the lamb, the true lamb, the lamb who uh, was sacrificed for us. But here he is standing with the 144,000 who had not the mark of the beast on them, not identified with the beast uh, and his people, but rather identified with the lamb and with his father. That's who they're marked out as. That's who they're identified with. Um, there's this whole part in there, uh, verse... Uh, oh, well, the, sorry. First is the song. We're singing this new song. This is just a celebratory song. Every time uh, like we see this new song thing, it's always in celebration of what God has uh, done most recently to rescue and redeem his people. So here we have the people who have been rescued and redeemed from uh, the world singing the song of salvation. Well, then we get uh, into verse 4, and there's this weird part about these are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they remain virgins. It's like, well, that's, that's just weird, right? Anybody? No, just me? Okay, we'll move on. <laughs> no, there's something going on here that I think is a little different than how uh, we first read it. We kind of first read it and you're like, oh, so I guess this is 
it's only men and uh, none of them have been married and you know, that kind of thing. This is uh, something that actually goes back. Don't forget this is a vision and there's a lot of things that are re- representative and pulling forward a lot of stuff from the Old Testament with every line. And this is the kind of thing that goes back to uh, sort of this idea of holy war that we have uh, early on in the Old Testament. You see this even in um, with David and he goes into the uh, <laughs> goes into the um, tabernacle at one point. And the, there's uh, the priest there. He's like, "Hey, can I have the bread?" And he's like, well, "I don't know." And he's like, "Well, you know, all my men, you know, we've uh, kept, have kept themselves clean and pure for how long?" He said, "Even when we go out on normal missions, how much more so this?" And so uh, there were these kind of clean and unclean laws, ritually clean and all that. And that's uh, part of what was going on even with soldiers, is if you were going to go out and you were going to fight on, uh, in, in the name of the Lord, you were going to do so even ceremonially clean, which uh, then you see that happening here, that you have people who are being represented as being ceremonially clean through and through. That's what's being depicted here, as well as... Uh, you know, when we look at other places in the New Testament, and we'll see this more even in Revelation later on, uh, the church itself being identified as the bride of Christ. And this is what we're seeing here, is this bride of Christ has been kept pure. And so when you think about uh, the seductions of the world and how this, the world systems and empire want to uh, kind of get people to follow along, and it is, um, it's the same kind of thing that we saw even with Solomon from the children's sermon of uh, the women who are leading him astray to follow after other gods. When, when as a church, when as people who are supposed to be united with God, we follow in the same footsteps as Israel did way back when, instead of staying true to the one true God, instead of staying faithful to him, we start to wander and we go after all the other gods of this world and go, well, maybe we can just, you know, no. So this is uh, identifying the people of God, this 144,000, which we saw back in chapter 7, that's that 12 times 12 times 1,000, all the people of God, uh, represented here as being pure, spotless, like how Paul describes the church in Ephesians chapter 5, this radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any blemish. That's what it's getting at there. And then in verse 5, you know, no lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. These are people who have a commitment to the truth, not to uh, what is convenient in the moment, to get a little bit of advantage here or there, but people who have a commitment to deep integrity of saying, this is how it is, and I cannot say otherwise. Um, Then you get these angels flying in the air, and um, and it talks about the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth. And this gospel might be 
a little uh, different than what you're expecting. If you're expecting that the uh, that the gospel message is going to be uh, God loves you and Jesus died for you and now you can have life in him, that is a part of the gospel. But this eternal gospel that's being declared here doesn't seem like it's leaving much room for repentance, but rather this is the good news that the time has come, that all of that was said before is, um, is coming to pass. This is uh, like the, oh, the time in Egypt when the people are being brought out. It's the good news, Egypt is going down and you guys are being brought out. This is good news for those who are being saved. Um, and this is how Paul writes about it in um, well, some of his letters to churches as well. It's good news to those who are being saved. But that same good news is going to be heard as bad news to those who had um, been setting themselves up as rivals to God because now they are finding out that's a losing position. But that is exactly what's happening here. Second angel uh, follows says, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. Here we have the adultery <laughs> uh, theme kind of picked up again. So you have those who remain pure and then those who have drunk this wine of adultery, this maddening wine that makes them just not even see straight. But why bring Babylon up? At the time of John's vision, Babylon's been gone for quite a while. Why bring him up? And this is one that you see throughout um, Revelation as Babylon is kind of this stand-in name for Rome <laughs> and all others like it. Babylon was the one who had uh, ruled over and seemingly destroyed the people of Judah back in 586 B.C., taking the people into exile, destroying Jerusalem, it seems like Babylon wins, the people of Judah lose. The people of God have lost. And yet, that's not the end of the story. But remember, we talked about the Tower of Babel earlier. I think we mentioned this when we were going through the book of Genesis, and we got to Genesis 11, that it's strange to me that uh, in Genesis 11, it talks about the Tower of Babel, when um, then you get on later and we're talking about Babylon, because in Hebrew, it's spelled the same. It's the same word. We're talking about Babylon the whole way through. And so when Babylon shows up, we're supposed to already have this connection to the Tower of Babel in mind. And so Babylon is another iteration of this Tower of Babel. And now we're seeing the Roman Empire being identified the same way. But we're seeing other empires uh, the same way. It's anybody who's setting themselves up uh, in this <clears throat> we can do it ourselves in opposition to God. When we have that kind of uh, attitude then what is going to happen? The same thing that happened with the Tower of Babel. The same thing that happened to Babylon. The same thing that happens to all the earthly empires. Fallen. Fallen. Is Babylon the Great? 
And a third angel comes and says that those who are worshiping the beast, who are following after uh, these empires, who are putting all their eggs in the basket of the empires of this world, are going to find out at this point um, that they, they place their bets incorrectly. That this is not the way that it's going to go. Um, which is why then it says, this calls for patient endurance on the part of God's people who keep his commands and remain faithful to Jesus. The last verse there, uh, or verse 13, um, I'll rest from their labor, their deeds will follow them. It's a way of pointing out that what we do here and now matters. And in verse 12, it tells us what it is we are to be doing. And this is to be uh, patient, to endure, to keep on keeping on, and to, remain, to keep uh, the commands and remain faithful to Jesus. We see in um, the start of this chapter, we see people who are following the lamb. Uh, Verse 4 says, they follow the lamb wherever he goes. Do you remember anywhere in the Gospels where Jesus told people to follow him? Does that sound familiar? Ring any bells? That is all over the place, isn't it? Jesus is constantly telling people, follow me, follow me, follow me. And his disciples, even as they're following him, still don't quite get it. They don't quite get how his leadership in the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, looks very different than leadership in the empires of the world. They keep expecting him to flip the switch and actually start ruling like the leaders of the world, and he doesn't do it. And his way of leadership looks an awful lot more like suffering and it looks an awful lot more like serving and it looks an awful lot more like doing good to the people who aren't doing good to him and forgiving even the very people who kill him. And then he says, follow me. Take up your cross. Follow me. What we hear is take up your sword and charge out on my behalf. But that's not what he says. He says, take up your cross and follow me. When he tells the parable of, you know, the, the sheep and the goats and who's going to be on his right and his left and all that kind of stuff. And like if they're separated all, all out. The kinds of things that he lists show those who are actually following him and those that aren't. Those who are actually caring for the people who are very vulnerable in society. 
doing things that may not seem like a big deal at all on the world stage, but that sure seems to be a big deal in the kingdom of heaven. We're visiting people in prison. We're giving uh, a cup of water to a little kid. I'm like, big deal. Ah, it is a big deal. So this shows uh, that you're actually following Jesus who commanded again and again and again, love each other as I have loved you. What we do matters. And as verse 12 points out, this calls for patient endurance on the people of God. Why patient endurance? It seems like this would be easy, right? We, just, yeah, we could do that. There's a reason not everybody runs marathons, even if everybody could run 100 yards. And it's the staying with it, just continuing on when everything in your body says, that's enough. You really need to stop. It's probably time to just lay down. <laughs> but it's that patient endurance that keep going even when everything uh, is saying, stop, stop. <laughs> You've done enough. That's plenty of miles covered. You can go ahead and stop. And there will be things, there will be voices, plenty of voices in this world that will tell you not to follow Jesus. That every bit of following Jesus is foolishness. It is uh, not what actually gets things done in this world. That it is a sure way to defeat and not to victory. And this is where we have to remember the vision that we're given in Revelation. This vision that shows us the difference between the perspective of the world and the perspective of heaven. This vision that shows us the difference between the cross on Friday and the cross on Sunday. That we are called to be those who love like Jesus who follow his way in ways that even look like defeat. Trusting that he knows what's best, that his way is not the way of the world, certainly not our way, but that his way is right, that he knows what he's doing, and that his way is the only way to real victory. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made. God, we do pray that you would help us. Help us to be tuned to your voice. God, that we would be able to discern between the way that you are leading and between the voices that are trying to... Um, Take us off that path. God, help us to walk closely with you. 
Help us not to charge ahead, asking you to follow us. Help us not to lag behind and not doing what you've called us to do. Lord, help us not to wander off the path and being distracted by all the shiny objects of the world and all the seductive voices. Lord, it is your rod and your staff that comfort us. Lord, keep us close. God, we thank you for for leading us, for guiding us, and for walking with us. And God, we do pray that you'd help us to walk with you, following you in everything. Lord, we pray this in the name of Jesus who taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil. Thine is the kingdom and power and the glory forever. Amen.